So just for those who are new, um, we practice by sitting uh, in meditation for about 40 minutes or so, and 35 now that we've taken all this time. And um, then we'll have a little bit of movement and, um, and then a Dharma discussion, discussion of the teachings. So to start, let's um, take a couple of deep breaths. And notice how, for me, when I, when I take a deep breath, I notice how shallow my breath has been until that moment. That we, as we walk around the world, we sometimes don't take in enough air. And it's helpful from time to time, even not when you're in a meditative setting, but in any kind of setting, to just from time to time notice what the depth of your breath is. And the next time you take a deep breath, which is about now, take a deep inhale. And as you exhale, allow a kind of simple relaxation to happen. You're not doing anything, you're not making anything happen. You're just letting the body come home, arrive here. And arrive here in a quite relaxed way, easeful. Let's say easeful, because when I say relax sometimes, it might even make us more stressed. So if you can just imagine that this body is sitting here with a great sense of ease. And why is there ease? Because there's nothing to do, there's nowhere to go, there's nothing to accomplish, this meditation that we do is more for establishing ease than it is for getting anywhere. And so that's our primary job. And we can start this meditation with this sense of ease and lightness and a feeling of kindness for ourselves. So, if you can, from the inside, feel this sense of the body sitting here on this chair, or this cushion, or this bench, and fill it with kindness, with goodwill. Even feeling a sense of gratitude for having brought this body here to feed it with some peace and calm and stillness. Which means that we let go of this feeling of needing to accomplish something, needing to get somewhere, needing to establish or get rid of anything. Our job is to arrive here fully. 
So we recognize what is true. There's a body, there's a heart, and there's a mind. And all of these are our servants. And they're doing their thing. So the body is being a body. The mind is doing what it does. It thinks, it reflects. And the heart is feeling. And this body has five senses. It hears, it sees, it thinks. I'm sorry, it hears, it sees, it smells, it tastes, it touches. And we have a mind that thinks. So we have six senses and that is the totality of our experience. And we're establishing the totality of this experience in this ground of ease and kindness. So can you allow the body to establish a sense of dignity, not letting go of ease, but allowing dignity to also appear as a partner to your ease. So the spine is somewhat erect without being stretched or tight. And allowing the crown of the head to be like attached to a string that pulls it towards the heavens so that the crown of the head <coughs> becomes the highest point in the body. And the chin is slightly tucked towards the neck, not all the way down, but just slightly tucked to allow the back of the neck to release and also be at ease. And the shoulders are relaxed. We don't need to hold them up to defend anything. And the hands are somewhere that they can feel relaxed enough not to have to move during this period. On the knees or upturned in the lap. and just recognize what's here. This breath, this body, this mind. And we're releasing whatever appears as it appears. But our release is not so much that we're doing anything but we're allowing every phenomenon of experience, whether it's sight, sound, smell, touch, taste, or thinking, to appear and disappear as it will, without our interference. All we are required to do is to recognize 
its appearance and its disappearance. We don't have to worry about what's present or future or past, just knowing what appears and what disappears. And if you find that the uh, awareness is able to simply do that, then you can stay there, just knowing what appears and disappears. If you find that the mind is engaging, so we hear sound, for instance, is the mind engaging or simply hearing the sound appear and disappear? Or is the mind going into gear about what is causing that sound? Or can we just notice hearing come and go? If the mind is engaging, we can always come to just the phenomenon of the experience of breath. Just this in and out and pause that happens that we call breath. This intake of air, expelling of air, and we call it breath. But we pay attention, not conceptually, but to the actual sensations of how the breath feels. As it comes in and as it goes out. Not rushing it, not being overly slow, just recognizing it as it comes and goes. may be helpful for you to have a tiny little upturn of your mouth to give the face a smile and allow the muscles to relax. If that's helpful or supportive. If it's not, that's okay. Just notice how the muscles of the face feel and allow them to be at ease. So allowing experience to come, abide for a while, and release. And that's our job in meditation, just knowing what's here now. Sounds, smells, sights, touch and taste, and thought. and always coming back to the breath when we notice that the mind is taking off or engaging in some way. 
even if we've been away for a long time, we can come back. And we come back without comment or judgment or creating some idea of how it should be. Meditation is simply knowing how it is with these six experiences of the senses. The wandering mind is not a problem. 
If you notice that the mind has wandered, that it's no longer here with the experiences that are arising now in this moment. Without recrimination or self-judgment, we simply return our attention to this present moment, this experience of now. Whether it's knowing simply the inhalation and the exhalation of the breath, or the hearing of sound, or even the thought that arises, abides for a while and passes away, we can pay attention to thought, simply knowing it's here, and allowing its natural rhythm and journey. We pay attention to its process and releasing its content. And returning over and over and over again to this moment now. allowing our attention to deeply sink into this moment.
So, um, let's, can we, <coughs> Greg, would you be willing to lead some movement? Thank you. So we're just going to do some movement to get our energy moving. I was reflecting today on the um, I don't want to say the state of the world because I'm, I'm not really um, because I don't think there's any such thing but it's it's a perception of how we all are together in community So this, the, I, I read today that the smallest, some, someone said that the smallest unit of health is the community. And I thought that was a really beautiful thing. Now the community can be defined in a lot of ways. The community can be defined as your small circle of friends and relatives that um, well, I just say friends <laughs> because relatives are a little bit more complex. <laughs> but your small circle of friends who you care about and who care about you. Or it can be a little bit wider, you know, the, the community that you live in, the actual physical, geographical community that you live in. Or you can see it as actually our community of being human, the, the community of human beings. And if we, if we really pay attention to how things are, we can have a lot of despair. Our, um, all of the ways in which we appear to be relating to ourselves, to each other, and the way in which we are treating each other uh, is devoid so largely of kindness and love and compassion and um, embracing joyousness. And it shows up in all kinds of ways. So we're in a, 
we're in a in a political um, period. We're in a, in the midterm elections, and there are all kinds of things that are happening that feel as if we really ought to be in great despair, especially as a community of color. That all across the country there appears to be a, um, a movement towards disenfranchising large numbers of people. The degradation of the environment is at a real tipping point. We don't know if we will be smart enough, wise enough, compassionate enough, and caring enough to really save this planet. If our greed will outstrip all of those beautiful qualities of heart that come with each of us, for each of us, with being human. There are wars abroad. There is this thing called Ebola, which everybody is getting really crazy about, right? There's a whole uh, way in which we're being encouraged to panic and to be fearful and to distrust and even to propose excluding a whole continent of people from uh, traveling by air to America. And it's very tempting, it's very tempting to respond, or I, should I say react, to the state of the world habitually. And what I mean by that is that we're very tempted to uh, not allow ourselves the possibility of shifting our relationship, our perspective, and our relationship to our, to our own internal life, to the world, to our, to our small community, and to the world at large. And whether that habitual reaction is greed, hatred, or delusion, somehow it feels, it may feel more comfortable than uh, shifting in such a way that we bring something new to the world. We bring something new to ourselves, to our families, to our friends, to our community, and to our world. And of course, if, when we all come here, we come to this place, to this place of peace and, uh, and goodwill, because we recognize something about the way we have been conditioned to react and respond to the conditions of the world. We recognize, at least for me, when I first heard these teachings and decided to take them, to, to test them out, to try them out and to take them up 
in my own life. It was because I recognized something about uh, the results of how I was relating to the world up until that point. And how I was relating to the world was really to deny what is being felt deeply and instead of knowing it and shifting, shifting the actual con inner conditions of my own being and my relationship to those conditions, to cover them up. And of course, I was a child of the 60s, so you know, we had our ways of covering them up. Right? And, you know, sometimes that helps, but it's very temporary. And it doesn't, uh, it doesn't allow for any kind of um, tectonic shift in our, in our lives. As I said, it's very temporary, and so those kinds of strategies where instead of uh, looking, taking the mind, turning the mind around to look at the mind, which is the source of all of our thoughts, words, and actions, and reactions, that instead of doing that, there is an assumption that that's perfectly fine and that it's actually the world out there that's a problem. So what these teachings actually bring us to is a way of uh, turning that um, illuminating, turning the mind to look at the mind and illuminating uh, the connection between the mind's activity and the uh, condition of our lives. Now that's not to say that the external world doesn't have any influence on the quality of our lives or on, uh, on, on the economics of our lives, on the, um, the, the, the justice or injustice of our lives, and so many other ways in which the external world has, um, has influence. And yet what we begin to realize when we come to practice, and we practice in, this, uh, in these teachings, is that the mind itself, and when I say the mind, I include the heart. So I, when I say mind, I mean mind-heart. So the mind itself, has a great deal of influence on the outcome. Now, when we say that, there is a danger that it might be interpreted to mean that um, either one or the other is, um, is responsible for whatever suffering we have or is responsible for whatever uh, success we've had in life, or whatever happiness that we've had in life. But I think there's a kind of a, there's a mixture. But if we were to, if I were to choose one of those that I wanted to pay attention to, the rational as well as 
the heart response would be that I'd want to pay attention to what is happening in this heart, mind, and this body. Why? Because I have very little control of what happens out there. I have not that much control over what is happening inside here, but I have a little bit more control over what's happening here. And the control that I have is not so much the control of what is arising, but really the choice of how to relate to what is arising, both externally and internally. Do you follow me so far? So, what I want to really address tonight, for all of us, is how serious we are about working with the internal um, experience and the internal relationship to external experience. And that's why we start with meditation. It's the meditation is not divorced from the um, the atmosphere of our lives. It's not divorced from the outcome of the day. It's not divorced from what is happening externally, um, culturally, as well as uh, personally. We're living in an age where distraction is the rule of how we, of how we live. We have iPads and, tel and iPods and iPhones and i-everything. And, and I think it's kind of ironic that they're all I, right? You know, for those of you who know a little bit about the Buddhist teachings. That, that somehow it's, it's all related to a self that's going to get some satisfaction from all of these different devices which are allegedly meant to connect us. And yet, what are we finding? We're finding that we're so disconnected from each other. I saw a, someone sent me a series of photographs uh, the other day on, on the email, the email, um, that showed uh, groups of people all sitting together like that, right? So just the external, just the external image of how our society is living today tells us a great deal about, about this ability or inability to connect with each other. And if we're having an inability to connect with each other, we're also having an inability to connect with ourselves. Because we're not separate from each other. We're not different than each other. Yes, we have individual um, uh, ways in which, you know, we can, we can name, I can name, you know, all of the ways in which I think Gina is different. But in fact, all of those ways are really minute compared to all of the ways in which we are exactly alike. So our disconnection from each other 
is not different than our disconnection from what is happening internally. And so our, our um, aim when we come here to practice together is the beginning of the unfolding of the transformation of our relationship to ourselves and to the external world. And of course, if you're a beginning student, it takes a bit of a leap of faith to believe that. If you are a student for any, even a small period of time, if you're really practicing, if you're really paying attention in the moment, from moment to moment in your life as best you can, because of course the mind wonders, you're noticing some transformation in your life. You're not, pay, you're not just being a kind of robot in sitting for periods of time during the day and getting up and nothing happens. Because I think if that happens, probably you're not doing it for a very long time, right? You're going on to Sufi dancing or something else, right? But if you've been practicing for any period of time, even, you know, six months or a year or short periods of time, you're beginning to see the difference. Now, what's the difference? The difference is that when we practice together, when we practice whether it's together or alone, and we're training the mind to be here, to be, act, to be acutely aware of what is present in our experience right now, there is nothing else that needs to be done. We may think because of our previous habits that the meditation kind of helped, kind of sort of helps us <coughs> to have more control over our lives. But really what it invites us to do is to let go of that illusion of control and to actually invite in more the understanding that the more we let go the freer we become. That we are bound, setting aside whatever societal issues we could spend our whole lives talking about, but we are bound actually, mostly, by the limiting idea that we are actually in complete control of what arises in our lives. And that if something good happens, it's because we're great. And if something bad happens, it's because we're lousy. Well, you know, that's going to make you ping back and forth, right? Because we all know that there are vicissitudes in life that come, and there are also joys in life that come. And most of the time, if you really examine it, it ain't nothing you did, right? But that but that life really is a kind of um, series of adventitious experiences that come and go depending on the conditions that are obtaining in that moment. And that of course includes your own 
body, mind, and heart activities, but it also mixes with the body, mind, and heart activities of every being that's on the planet and produces conditions to which we then become subject. So, oh my goodness, if I don't have any control over what's happening in my life, then this is a real disaster, right? But here you are. You don't have any control over what's happening in your life, but here you are, so it's obviously not a disaster. So what we're really talking about is do, do the, the events of your life, the experiences of your, of your life, bring suffering and free, or, or do they bring freedom and joy? And that's, that's where, that's the intersection of the Dharma with life. It's not so much learning how to control either external or internal conditions, but really looking at what is possible in terms of our relationship to what occurs, to the experiences that are coming and going according to these adventitious conditions and circumstances of our lives. And if that's true, then what is really needed is a, is a real commitment, a real intention to shift, to transform, to notice completely and deeply how we suffer and where we suffer. And lately, a lot of people have been asking me why questions. Why does this happen? Or why are we here? Or what's good? What, you know, why, 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 why? And do you know what my, my answer is? I don't know. Right? Does anybody know why? <laughs> I really want to know. Because if you know why, I really want to know. Because I don't know. But it, all the years we've been asking ourselves why, I think we've lost what the real question is. It's how. How do we live in this world? How do, we, how do I live in this world? Not you know, why is the world doing what it's doing, but how am I living in this world? And how do I meet this world? And do I meet the world with the same kind of greed, hatred, and delusion that the world seems to be able to constantly, 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 infinitely produce? Or do I meet it with generosity rather than greed? With kindness and love rather than aversion? And with wisdom and clarity rather than with delusion? And all of this is, is, these are the, this is the real place that these teachings and this practice invite us in. But we will not get the benefit of it without truly commitment, true commitment and depth of practice. It's up to us. The world's going to do what it's going to do but it's actually up to us 
as to how we receive that and how we respond to it. And there's a, there's a teaching about equanimity that is like the, the empress of the teachings where we're invited to respond to the world externally and internally with neither grasping at what we think is pleasant nor pushing away what we think is unpleasant and unwanted nor ignoring what is neutral. We're actually invited and, um, and urged to move into that place of non-reactivity. And I know with this group that there's always the question when I say that, and I say it a lot, about acti activism and equanimity because there's always a, 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 a mistaken idea that when we're invited to respond to the world in, in that way, whether we're uh, responding to praise and blame or gain and loss or pain and pleasure or fame and disrepute, that we respond in exactly the same way with wisdom that knows that these things come and go like everything else in the world. That there's nothing permanent in the world where we can say, yup, I finally got it and I'm gonna let it, I'm gonna make everything stay exactly like it is today. You know what that is? Death, right? That as long as we're alive, things are moving and changing and shifting, not according to our personal wishes, not according to our personal control, but according to these conditions that, uh, that I've talked about before. So equanimity is not indifference. It's not apathy. It's not trying to work for justice where there is injustice. It is not um, shrugging our shoulders at the despoliation of the, of the, <coughs> of the planet, but actually rolling our sleeves up and wishing to help and doing what we can to help. And all of the other ills that I can, the, 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 the political discourse that we're subjected to is disgraceful. All of that we can respond to in a way that hopefully makes it better. Bring justice if we can where there is injustice speak to power about the despoliation of the environment or whatever else. There are so many things we can do or try to change the whole system of incarceration where we have two million people, over two million people now, incarcerated where we had 300,000 only 20 years ago. We can work on all of that but what do we bring to it? What kind of our, our, our posture of dignity in meditation is a big hint that we can actually sit in the midst of all of the, the, um, 
the, 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 the pinging of our minds going here, there, and everywhere when we're just trying to be with this present moment. That we can actually sit in dignity and embrace all that is happening is a really beautiful template for this practice of equanimity. And it's, it's the practice that we're invited into with equanimity is to understand that all beings are heirs to their karma <coughs> and that their happiness or unhappiness does not depend upon our wishes but upon their own cause actions and the causes that they establish. And when we can do that, we can bring to the world a sense of dignity, of kindness, of goodwill, of generosity. And in that way, we're not making the conditions worse. Which, as we practice, we begin to understand our own role in our suffering. But, we, but all of those realizations do not happen simply by a superficial way of practice that maybe, you know, today we practice for five minutes and tomorrow we practice for ten and then we don't practice for five days and then we... It takes a real commitment to try it out if you haven't practiced before to say, well, I'll give it six months, or I'll give it three months, or I'll give it and see what happens. But it really requires a kind of um, genuine understanding of where we are in the world and what our contribution to the world is. And in your world, your contribution is huge. It's huge. It's everything. So when you come into your day in a bad mood or with aversion or greed, that's what your world is like. So how do you want to practice? In the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the sutta where the, the discourse where the Buddha establishes this practice of meditation, he asks us to sit down at the root of a tree or in a hut. Well, these days it's a little hard, but you know, we can find the kind of symbolic, metaphorical place, root of a tree or hut. But he says, do so and practice with ardency. Ardency, be ardent. And not only to practice with ardency, but also to let go of any clinging whatsoever to the world. Oh my God, how can I let go of any clinging whatsoever to the world? Try it for a day. Try being ardent in your practice and letting go of any clinging whatsoever to the world. What does that mean? Do you have any idea what it means to let go of any clinging to the world? 
it means we no longer see the world as being capable of making us happy or unhappy. It means that we see the world exactly as it is and we bless it, we don't condemn it. Because the minute we condemn it, we're clinging to it. Any hint of condemnation is clinging. Any hint of feeling that our happiness is dependent on what the world does is clinging. So the Buddha invites us to let go of all of that, to let go of all, any hint of clinging. Now, you know, I know, it's a bit much, <laughs> right? It is a bit much, but have you tried it? Have you actually considered whether your belief that the world can deliver happiness or unhappiness is really true? Have you considered how your relationship to all of that is really the conveyor of happiness and unhappiness? So when we practice, you know, the, the, the world right now is just full of mindfulness. Mindfulness for the army, mindfulness for the corporations, mindfulness for this one, mindfulness for that one. Poo, poo, poo. Mind, eh, mindfulness, right? What's actually asked of us if we are to enter into this practice is to establish a life of integrity and ethics and to establish a heart of generosity and kindness and to do whatever it takes to do that. And it's up to you to really figure that out. To, to understand, to be so aware of what's happening internally and it, because again in that discourse the Buddha talks about looking internally, looking externally and looking at the relationship between the two the internal and the external so this, this meditation thing is not simple it's actually brilliant it's actually luminous it can actually illuminate our lives but it can't do it if we don't commit. It can't do it if we don't deepen. It can't do it if we, like in the, in the teachings they talk about being an empty pot bobbing on the water. If we stay superficial, we will never ever reap the amazing valuable benefits of this practice that we did together today.
and we can do it. What it takes is discipline. It takes commitment, intention, and discipline. And it's really, really, really important for our world. It is important that there be beings in this world whose values are generosity, kindness, and integrity. It cannot, it, the, the world cannot survive the weight of beings without these qualities, without the counterbalance of beings who do have these qualities. That's you, that's us. Please, please commit to your practice. And it doesn't have to be New York Insights practice or Vipassana or Theravada practice. But you need to practice. You need to commit to a practice. And preferably, if you commit to one, to commit to one style of practice, because that's what will deepen will help you to deepen your practice. Yes, in the beginning you have to kind of go around to all of these different places and see if you find a teacher that you like and, and listen to the teachings and if they resonate with you and all of that. You have to do that investigation. But once you find it, pay attention. Really do it deliberately and enthusiastically because you need that enthusiasm for when the difficulties come, and they will come. Because life is hard. It's, it's really hard, and it's certainly difficult to shift habits. So what I hope for you is that you will somehow find that place within yourself that knows deeply the beauty that you are, the goodness that you are, and that you will understand that when the mind produces anything that is opposed to that, your goodness and your beauty, these are adventitious experiences that will pass like clouds across a beautiful blue sky. And you will know that by the power of your practice. So that's what I wish for you. Thank you. So we have some, a little time if you have questions or comments. I just want to say tonight the way it felt for me is really a deep gratitude for the Dharma talk because what you're speaking to in terms of the practice and the commitment was really present for me today. Mm -hmm. um, 
I'm not going to get into the story because it's not important. But it is important to me today is just to say that I am so deeply grateful for having a Sangha and having a space where I can come and not be judged and just be, that it's just really, it fills me with joy. And um, thank you for that gentle reminder and that invitation um, to deepen my practice. Thank you, Isabel. And I'm particularly interested if any of the beginners here had any um, questions about the, in, the meditation instructions too. And please tell me your name. Diana. Diana. Tina. Diana. D-I-A-N-A. Diana. Diana. Thank you. Hi. Hi. <coughs> I have two questions and a sore throat. Sorry. Can you hold the mic closer? Yes. Yes. So, one in terms of like a beginning meditation question is what would you say is the minimum amount of time to just commit to a sit at home? I, I practice every day at home, but I just was wondering how long you think is the minimum I should commit to every day. A minimum that you could, should commit to every day for uh, practice? Yes. For your daily practice? So are you practicing daily now? I do. You do? I do. How, and how long do you sit? Well, I, I sit for 15 minutes mm -hmm. after doing a series of martial arts in the morning. After doing a series of... <clears throat> you have like, a cold, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like yogic, yogic movements uh -huh. and, and then a sit for 15 How minutes. How present are you when you do your martial arts? It's, I do them so that I can sit deeper. So uh -huh. I really but are you, do you feel that you're very present with your body and how your body is moving and the feelings that ha are happening in your body, etc.? Mm -hmm. And just as, in, just as in a sit, there's times where my mind goes spiraling uh -huh. off and then I bring it, bring it back. Beautiful. And... and why did you choose 15 minutes? Um, just as a busy lifestyle, it felt like something realistic that I could commit to every day. Aside from that, I, I go to a cent another center three days a week. You go to another center three, three days, days a week? Yeah. Uh -huh. But just on my own at home, that felt like something sustainable with my lifestyle. But I, and I haven't actually explored doing more in any other setting. Like in, in a group, maybe, but on my own, I have not really done more than 15 minutes. So is it just because of lifestyle or is it because that's a, as much as you think you can do, you know, internally? Probably a little both. Probably I'm avoiding something maybe. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> maybe I'm so maybe what you want to do is, you know, so if you feel as if <clears throat> doing 15 minutes, that you can actually commit to 15 minutes, that's great. That's really great. And you may want to see from time to time, like, you know, if, you, if you're sitting for 15 minutes and you're just beginning to drop when the bell rings or the timer goes off, see what it might be like to just sit for another five minutes. Just no big deal, no commitment, you know, you're not getting married to it or anything. You just like doing an extra five minutes, right? And see how that feels. 
So for a lot of a lot of the time when people who are beginning ask me what to do, I tell them five minutes. Because that's what feels like you know, possible. But for you, you already know fifteen minutes is very possible. So do you want to like stretch or do you want to just stay in that habit is your question. And I, I'm not gonna answer that question for you, right? That's a question you can you can have that conversation with yourself. Mm-hmm. Is this a, ha- a habit now I've, I, that I can actually do more, but I've made this my habit? And because the minute we have kind of sunk into a habit, that's when we want to be at our height of awareness, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. I have one more question. Is okay. okay? Um, I'm, I'm just trying wondering if you could shed any insight on the idea of like non-attachment and like the the kind of relationship between not being attached and also like having things matter or care like there's a place where it's like one wants to invest in the well-being of the world and is that attachment and what's the like? I, I it's attachment like if you if you have a particular outcome that you need to have happen, mm. and as far as you're concerned, everything else is failure. Mm. Mm. Is it okay to have things matter? <laughs> Why wouldn't it be? It doesn't. I'm just worried. I don't know if that means you're being attached, like especially with the state of the world. Uh huh. So you know, so clinging, attachment, you know, all of these are um, kind of synonyms. If, if when you think about something that you think you're attached to, anything in your body feels tight, or anything in your mind feels tight, like I'm going to do this, but I need this to happen. I need. I need for this person to do that, and that person to do that, this person to have that attitude, and that person to have, you're clinging. If you say, this needs to be done, and I'm the one who can do it, and I'm going to do it, and it's okay however it turns out, you're not attached. If you're suffering at all from this good deed that you're doing, you're attached. We could talk about that for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for your question. Rihanna here. Just wanted to comment on that because I identify as an activist. (laughs) Uh, But I I was going to say that I think that. I like what you said about being attached to the outcome and having a particular outcome because I, I think that sometimes when I, sometimes I do get attached. There are moments where I get attached and mm-hmm. I want a particular outcome. Mm-hmm. And then when I do my sitting, I'm like, I got to give that up. Yeah. Well, but wanting, I don't wanna wanting a particular outcome yeah. is different than being attached to it. Yeah. To, want, to want to work for justice and to want justice in the world is a beautiful thing. But to think that 
you will not be happy until the whole world is just. That's a problem. Because right. first of all, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. But secondly, you're, you're suffering. Because we know the world isn't going to ever be perfectly just. And just according to whose standards, we won't even get into that, right? Because maybe some people feel the world is really just. So who's right? And that's where war starts, right? So, so it's not, so caring is not the problem, as we were saying, and I think as you, as you understand, it's just, is your happiness conditioned on, what, what are the conditions that you feel need to be here for you to be happy? Right? That's when you know that it's not quite balanced yet. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate that because um, I feel um, from a lot of teachers that I've been across, it's been white identified. And at the same time that they would make that statement, they would also make the statement about how they really um, benefit from <laughs> the, uh, their white privilege. And I'm like, uh, that's, that's really hard for me to, to say that. So they, they feel like they, their, some of their happiness, their content is based on the outcome. You know, the, 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 out, the external sources that they get, the benefits that they get. I, I'm sorry. Some of their happiness and content yeah. is based on the external benefits that they get mm -hmm. as a white privileged person. Mm -hmm. At the same time, they s say things like what you said. And I have a hard time hearing that. So you have a hard time hearing it from somebody who's white. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When at the same time, they're saying that they have these benefits that they enjoy or that they, or that they just benefit from, but that they're not saying that they want to do something about that or that they... Mm -hmm. you know, it's sort of like they, they're benefiting from external sources and that's why they're happy. Mm -hmm. So, so that's, there's that. Mm -hmm. And there's also just the human condition, right? Because even if you don't know, even if you're not aware that your happiness is conditioned on certain um, uh, conditions being how you would want them to be, you're still suffering. You, and, and you're probably suffering more if you're not aware of it. Thank you. How does that work? <laughs> right? Because you can't change, because if you're not aware of it, there's nothing you can do to, to shift the suffering. So is it possible to have compassion for that? Oh, this is really rough now, right? Is, right, but is, but is it possible for you to see their suffering even though it's different and comes from a different set of circumstances as equal to yours? Because if you don't, then you start to fall into victimization, to victimhood. And we're now talking just about your happiness, right? What, can, what, what do you need to do to be happy? But happy not in the sense of, oh, I got this gallon of ice cream and now I'm really thrilled because it's chocolate. <laughs> right? right? 
you know, we're talking about a, a condition of happiness, a condition of not suffering, and how, how we establish that in ourselves. And it's a, it's a coming and going thing. It's not like we're going to get it perfect and it's going to just stay that way forever. It's always something that we are balancing and, and being aware of, like, what's happening in this mind? What's it clinging to? What's the idea that it's clinging to? And can you hear the same um, teaching from somebody who is in a privileged position and who benefits from some of the injustice in the world and still have some compassion for their human suffering? Because if you can't, then you're still clinging to some idea of how it needs to be or how it should be in order for you to be happy. It's complex, you know, it's not simple. But we, we need to reflect for ourselves on how it's all kind of put together, you know, what all the pieces are, so that we can at least establish the conditions for our happiness, even though it may not arrive right now. And those conditions are usually internal, they're not external. Although some external conditions make us a little happier than other external conditions, right? But true happiness really comes from the internal conditions. Thank you. You're welcome. And it's a lifetime's work for an activist to understand that, really. Really, I know that. Hmm. So thank you for your attention and for your practice tonight and for coming and being a part of this community. We're so happy. We, we started this group, I think it was, it, it's almost, I think it's about nine years ago. And it's so beautiful that it's thriving and flowering and it's, it's, one, I, it's my favorite group to teach. I'm really so happy that you're here. So when we come together in this way, we establish a, a field of goodness and what's called in the teachings merit. And instead of holding it to ourselves, we cast it out across the whole world. And we share this goodness and this merit. And we dedicate the goodness and the merit of the practice to the benefit the welfare, the happiness, the well-being, and the awakening of all beings everywhere, without exception. And we send our wishes out that all beings be safe from harm, all beings, without exception, be happy and peaceful, all beings be healthy and strong, and live with ease, free from suffering, and completely free.
may it be so. And please think or bring into the room any being that you feel you would like to give this kindness to. And if you'd like to say their name out loud, you're very welcome to do so. and holding in a wide embrace all of these beings and wishing for their well-being and the illumination of their goodness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.